So, um, so today, um, I want to talk about traps. You know, I've been reading the Old Testament, and um, what's really interesting is that when you read the Old Testament, um, they talk a lot about idol worships. And a lot of times, like, when we read about idol worship, like, we think that that's something that's only prevalent and relevant in the Old Testament. And um, it's very interesting, and in Solomon, um, in his wisdom, he says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we see a lot of these reoccurring things, right, in our society. And so um, today, I kind of want to talk about traps, you know. And so, um, you know, we see throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, there's a calling to something called holiness, right, where God is calling us into holiness. But on the other end, there's something that's pulling us away. And, you know, that a lot of times is idol worship. And, um, and, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a very distinct calling to holiness. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. But first, I kind of want to just, you know, briefly put it out, what holiness is. Holiness is um, it's not perfection, but holiness needs to be set apart. I think it's, I think you have to, like, undo it just a regular time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so holiness means does not mean perfection. I think yeah. a lot of times we get that mixed up. Yeah. Like we think holiness means perfection, but actually holiness does not mean perfection. But it means to be set apart. And so, um, I kind of want to talk about um, today. I want to go over judges, but before that, I kind of want to go over a little bit context about that. And so, um, you know, we see in the Old Testament, right, like God is calling the Israelites. Um, God calls uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery to go deeper into worship. He calls them out of bondage and out of slavery. And he says very specifically, I want to let I want to bring my people out so they can worship. And so, um, you know, in the like judges, as I go over judges, um, you know, judges picks off. Uh, picks up from where uh, Joshua dies. So Joshua passes away, and then that's when Judge, uh, you know, that's when the book of Judges kind of begin. And so, you know, if some of you guys have grown up in church, you probably heard a lot about Joshua, right? Um, you know, Joshua led the Israelites into a battle um, of Jericho, and so they marched around the walls seven times, right? Yeah. And on the seventh day, the whole army let this huge shout and the walls, they came crumbling down, right? So if you guys, while you're saying that song as a kid growing up, that's, you know, what it's about, right? And so, um, so up until that battle, what happened was when Joshua led the Israelites, you know, around Jericho, um, the Israelites had been wandering for 40 years. So they had been wandering, right? Because of their disobedience, where God calls them into the promised land. But they disobey. And what ended up happening is that they end up wandering. And so God says that this generation will never see the promised land. And what ended up happening was um, that generation passes away. And God calls Joshua yeah. to lead the yeah. Israelites into the promised land. So, um, so the book of Judges pick up after the death of Joshua. right? And the theme of Judges is that it's a story of the failure of the Israelites as a nation. The failure as a nation. And we see in, um, we see in the book of Judges, right? Joshua calls 
you know, like Joshua is being called to let, like, lead people in. And they're supposed to go and conquer this area, right? That's occupied by the Canaanites, yeah. by the Canaanites. Yeah. And so God gives them very specific information to go. And we see that there's this kind of failure to um, accomplish what God is calling them to do, right? And so we see that there's this cycle in Judges, right, where God is calling the people to holiness, to be set apart. But then we see that they fall into sin and influence of the outside nations, the surrounding nations. And what ends up happening is that these people, they get oppressed, right? Because they disobey God. So God's like, you know, like kind of let them, he kind of let them go into their sin, right? And so when we say like, I kind of want to make it clear, right? When God tells them to go into Canaanite territory, and he actually tells them to overtake this territory, right? And the reason why is because he wanted them to be set apart. He wanted them to be separated from the outside influence. And we yeah. see that, you know, the Canaanites, there's like a, there's a lot of moral corruption, right? So we see a lot of practices like fertility worship practices, even child sacrifice. And um, we see that time and time again, the Israelites would fall into this where they would kind of pick up like these practices of these outside nations, right? And so what ends up happening is God says, you know, in his goodness, right, he, he lets them make their own choice and they fall into sin and they become oppressed. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is they repent and they cry out to God. We see this. Right. And then God, would, in his mercy, yeah. would hear these people, right? Hear their cries. And what he would do is he would deliver, he yeah. would raise up someone to deliver yeah. the people. Yeah. And then after that, there's a, like a time of peace. Right. Mm-hmm. But then what ends up happening is again, right? Like God's calling them to holiness to be set apart. And then they fall into this vicious cycle where it goes over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So in the book of Judges, right, God raised up a deliverer. Like raises up a deliverer, you know, throughout this period. And they're called judges. And so judges are not... Um, People like, you know, in the courtroom where you see that, like, judges, but they're actually, like, military leaders. So God raises up these military leaders to bring about peace, right? So, so today I kind of want to talk about a story in the book of Judges, and um, it's about a man named Gideon. So God raises up someone named Gideon to deliver his people. And so who is Gideon? So Gideon was this really interesting man, right? Um... You know, what's really interesting about the Bible is that a lot of times you read and you're kind of like, actually, it's really relatable, right? And so Gideon is this man, and God calls him. So God meets him and calls him to deliver his people because God hears the cry of his people that are being oppressed. So during this time when Gideon was called, um, the Israelites were, had been seven years, they had been oppressed by the Midianites. And so they were under this oppression that they were so scared that people actually moved up to like the mountains and the collapse in the cave. They were so scared that they lived there, right? And so God raises up, he calls Gideon and he raises him up, right? So God meets Gideon and he's a very interesting man because I think if you read about him, he's very relatable. He's someone that is... um, Always scared. Like, not, like, scared, like, but he was so unsure of his yeah, calling, right? Yeah, right? So, like, even when God first met Gideon, like, he kind of, he, he, you know, God, God, like, meets Gideon, right? And he says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. 
And so, you know, Gideon was like, oh, okay, like, you know, if you're, if, like, I just want to make sure that you really are God. And so he says, like, can you just wait here for a moment? Like, let me just, can you show me a sign? So Gideon, what he ends up doing, he goes and he, like, he gets together this offering and this sacrifice, right? And the angel of the Lord says, place it, and then, like, place it on that rock. And so Gideon goes and he places the offering on the rock, right? And then fire consumes this burnt offering. And Gideon saw that it was God. He's like, oh, shoot, this is God. And in his fear, he, like, falls down. And then he's like, he's, and then he was so afraid for his life. He's like, oh, my gosh, I've seen the face of God. He's going to kill me, right? Which is very interesting because if God is calling you to deliver his people, why would he kill you before? Yeah. Right? If anything, like, maybe after. But so anyway, so he was really scared. Like, he was also very cautious. He always needed, like, reassurance from God, you know? And so, like, even when God had said that, you know, I will bring you victory, like, Gideon says, okay, can you, like, show me a sign, right? Like, in the morning, there's going to be this, like, rug, right? He places his rug, and he says, you know, in the morning, if really you're going to give me victory, can you please just let the, the carpet be filled with dew, and then the area around it can be wet? So God's like, okay. Right? God meets him where he's at. He's like, oh, okay, God's like, I understand, right? So in the morning, God shows him that sign, right? Because the, the carpet became so wet that you could even, like, wring it out, yeah. right? And then it was like a whole bowl of water. And then so, but he has to, like, he has to be really sure. So what's happening? He's like, God, okay, can you do that again? But this time, can you flip it? Can you have, like, the floor wet, but then the carpet dry? And then God meets him where he's at, and he does it, right? So he's very cautious, and he's also, you know, very fearful, right? So, um, so kind of what um, story that I really want to go into today about Gideon is that um, there's this really amazing story, and I kind of want to go over it, and then really that kind of paints this picture of like this cycle that we fall into, and that, um, but where is God? Like, how does God work through that? And in that process, like, how's he calling us into holiness? How's he calling us to be set apart? And so, um, if you turn to Gideon chapter 6, we won't go over the whole chapter, but I kind of want to, um, actually, Gideon chapter 7, right? So, there's this battle that God calls Gideon to. And he says, you know, like, you're going to go and you're going to fight these Midianites and I'm going to give you victory. And so Gideon gathers all these people, right? And Gideon is like, he comes from like one of the smallest tribes. Like he says, he comes from the smallest and weakest tribe, right? And he says like, I'm also the youngest in my family. Like how can you use me, right? But he, you know, he gathers like 32,000 men, right? To go into this battle to fight. But then God says, that's too many people, yeah. Like, I don't want, like, God says, there's too many people, you need less. And he says that because he wants to show the people that it's not their own strength. It's not by what they can do, but that it's God that will deliver them. So, so, so Gideon goes, right? He hears God. God says, too many people. So he says, okay. So he goes and he tells the people. Like, if you guys are trembling with fear and you can't go into this battle, right? I mean, these people have been oppressed and they've been, like, really scared. So he said, if you cannot fight in this battle, you can leave. So what ends up happening is that over 22,000 people leave, right? Out of, like, 32,000 people, right? Like, or, like, 
12, like only 12,000 people remained, right? 12,000, like basically that's like cutting down 70% of your army, wow. right? He's already scared, right? They're already a small yeah. group of people. Yeah. But God says, cut it down, right? Oh. And after that, God says, cut it down even more. Right. Cut it down even more, right? So at that point, God says to Gideon, I will show you who I want you to, like, who I want you to bring into this battle, right? So he takes them out to the water, and he says to Gideon, okay, like, watch, watch those that are drinking water. And he says, those that, you know, like, that get down, and they, they drink from the floor, like, they lap like a dog, and they're another group of people who will get down and use their hands to cup, right, and to drink. And so, so God says, Okay, I want you to take the people that get down on their knees and to drink. And so what ended up happening was only 300 people there. Yeah. So think about this, right? From 32,000 people to 300 people. And that's like 1% of your army day. So God basically cut down everything only to 1%. Yeah. And you know what's very interesting about that is that you know, in God's kingdom, less is more. Yes. Less is more. Like, we think we need this much, but he shows less is more. I can do more with less. And so, so he gathers 300 people, and then God shows up to Gideon at night, right? And he says, I want you to go, and I want you to go fight. And so, but God... Knowing in his grace, his mercy, knowing who Gideon is, he says, I know, you know what, if you're afraid, what I want you to do is bring a servant, and you're going to go to the outskirts of the tent. And so, so Gideon, of course, he's scared, right? So he brings his servant, and he goes to the outskirt of this tent, right? And then God says, like, listen, listen to what you'll hear, right? And so, as Gideon approaches to the, the outskirts of this town, um, he sees two people, right? This guy and his friend, and they're talking. And what Gideon hears is that this guy talking about his dream. And so his dream, this man says, I had this weird dream last night. I had this dream that there was this huge, like, loaf of barley bread, and it rolled down, and it hit this tent, and then the tent overturned, right? He's like, I mean, it's kind of a weird dream, right? But that guy's friend said, and he interpreted it as that that means that Gideon is going to overtake this camp. Right? So Gideon is listening to this, right? And what's happening is he falls to the ground and he worships, right? And so after hearing that, right, um, you know, I kind of want to quit pause right there, right? I think it's very interesting that, you know, as we read the Old Testament, I think a lot of times, like, there's this misconception that we see God in the Old Testament. He's mean. Yeah. God in the New Testament. He's loved, right? Yeah. right but you right. know, this is all about the same God. Yeah. Yeah. And what's very interesting yeah. is that even in the Old Testament, like, wow, God is so gracious. Like, he met Gideon where he was at. Yeah. And he said, you know, like, I know you're afraid, but I'm going to meet you where you're at, because I understand. Yeah. Right? So this God of the Old Testament that shows so much love, right? And so... So he says, like, so then moving on back to the story. So what ends up happening is then Gideon responds. He finally responds, and he gathers 300, 300 of his men, right? And so he gathers these men, and he gives them each three items, right? This jar, this trumpet, and a torch. 
And so, I don't know how they would hold it, they put the torch like in the play and they carried it, right? So just like those items, like Gideon tells them to, he breaks them off into three groups and he says, surround this camp. And so as he surrounds his camp, during this specific time when the guards were about to switch, um, what happens is Gideon tells his people to break the jar, to blow the trumpet, break the jar, and then shout, for the Lord and for Gideon, right? And then there causes this huge confusion because they're like already switching. And what's happening is that God caused, caused this confusion and then the people start fighting each other. They fight each other and then they end up winning the battle, right? And so I think when you look at this story, this is really amazing, right? This huge victory, right? But you would think that if someone has experienced God's goodness and such huge victory like in their life, you would think that their life would be fully committed to God, yeah. Yeah. Right? right? But then we see this happen. Gideon used the gold to make an ephod, which he put in his hometown, the town called Oprah. All the Israelites worshipped this ephod. In this way, the Israelites were not faithful to God, and they worshipped the ephod. And the ephod became a trap that caused Gideon and his family to sin. Wow. So going back a little bit, right, after this victory, the people said to Gideon, please lead us, right? Lead us, lead us. But Gideon says, no, like, I will not lead you. But then the weird thing is, he tells them, but what I do ask of you, if each person, like, each one from your family can bring a gold earring and then place it on this cloth, right? So he asked every member of every family to bring, like, this piece of gold. And then what he did with that gold was he created this ephod, right, which people worshipped. And so, and it says at the end, this ephod became a trap that caused Gideon and his family to sin, right? So an ephod, like, we see that in different times in the Bible, it's like this linen like that's used to like people, like the priests who wear to worship God. But also there's like in context, like in this context right here, it was just like an object. It was just like a, like a golden object, right? And so people worshiped it. And so I think, you know, what's very interesting when you talk about traps, right? Traps are not supposed to be obvious. Like, traps are not obvious, right? Because if you're trying to trap an animal, like, you would never, like, put this, like, trap in front of your, your animal, right? Because that's too obvious, right? So traps are not supposed to be obvious. And it says here that the epoch became a trap that caused Gideon and his family to sin. And it was, like, so soon after that victory. And you know what's interesting? Again, I'm going to repeat. Just as Solomon says, like, there's nothing new that's under the sun, right? And we talk about this, like, this idol worship, right? Time and time again, right? God is calling people, his people to himself. He's calling them to be set apart yeah. from everything, or like the outside surrounding nations. But then there's this draw, right? This pull on this other side to idol worship, right? But what I want to say today is that, you know, idol worship is not something that's only found in the Old Testament. We see it in our modern day lives, like yeah, everyday, yeah, right? Yeah. But they're traps, they're not obvious. Wow. You don't know what are they, right? Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, no matter how strong people think they are, or even have experienced God's goodness, yeah. they're always susceptible to traps, wow. to fall into wow. again. And so, that verse, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. 
and there's nothing new that's under the sun. So I want to kind of go over a few things. So first thing is, what is idol worship, right? So in, in essence and basic definition of what worship is in general, is to feel an adoring reverence or regard for any person or thing. So it's not specifically like, it's only idol worship if you worship this or have adoring reverence for this. It's anything yeah. or person, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's, that's worship. Another definition is, it's reverent honor and homage paid to God or sacred personage, a person or distinction of importance, right? So um, it's very interesting, right? Like we see in uh, the Old Testament, there are instances of idol worship where people are performing certain rites to fulfill a longing or desire. Yeah. Wow. So we see that in the Old Testament. That's what idol worship is, right? But what is modern day idol worship? You know, what are some things that are kind of like traps that we might not be able to see or even know that, you know, these things that causes us and pulls us away from God, right? You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure some of us maybe heard this before, right? It could be money. Yeah. It could be education, right? Like, are we placing, you know, and these things are not bad. Yeah. So yeah. first I want to say that money is not bad. That's right. Like, and that influence is not bad. But you know, if when we place it above yeah. God and our adoration and our, yeah, our adoration, our worship and our love goes for that object, becomes more than how much we adore and love God, then that becomes idol worship. And so, you know, we even see like maybe modern day like idol worship is maybe influencers, right? We value great authors, professors, and even some motivational speakers. And maybe in honesty, let's be honest, maybe some of us idolize our pastors, right? And so, you know, like, what, like modern day worship, like of idols, right? And so, What's very interesting is that, you know, back to my previous point, like idol worship, like includes like a certain right or like to, uh, to fulfill a longing or desire, yeah. right? And so when we look at things like money and education, like even our careers, like, you know, there's something that, you know, we're kind of putting our faith in that object, right? Yeah. To bring us, to fulfill this desire and this longing. Like maybe we long for certain relationships, and maybe we think that, okay, in order to get this relationship that I want, I need to look a certain way, or I need to have a certain education, right. or a certain amount of money. Right. Maybe your right. longing is like, mm. to have a family, mm. right? And so you think, like, what are these rights or these wow. things I need to do in order to achieve it, yeah. right? And so, like, all these things are not bad. Yeah. In the Bible, like, it doesn't say that money is evil, it's just the love of money, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Love money is the root of all evil, right? And so, yeah. Do we desire these things more than God? And do we desire these things more than his kingdom? So idol worship is a trap. And so, the third point I want to make is, why does this make God so sad? Like, why does he care about these things, right? And... You know, um, it says in, I think I have this verse. It says in Exodus 34:14, it says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. It says that our Lord is a jealous God. I kind of want to briefly explain this. There are two 
two different words, right? Envy and jealousy. I think sometimes we think they're the same, but they're actually not the same. Jealousy and envy are not the same, right? So envy is when you covet something, right? You covet something that someone else has. But jealousy is actually an emotion. Like it's kind of like emotion of fear that uh, you have of being replaced, right? Like I might not be jealous of whatever, you know, I, Nicole is wearing, right? Um, or new shoes, right? I'd not be jealous of that. Like, I'd be envious of that because I want that, right? But I might be jealous if I see that my husband, JJ, is spending more time with other people or that he values the time spent with other people, even maybe video games more than me. That's jealousy. And God, you know, God has every right to be jealous. Yes, every right. Because he loves us. He loves us so much. And if we say that we love God, but yet our affection, our attention is not given to God, which he deserves, he's jealous. He's a jealous God. God is not envious of what we have. He's not envious of our success. He's not envious of our money. Because he has it all. He has it all, right? But he's a jealous God. And what he is jealous of is our attention and our desire for him. Yeah, that's good. So, my last point. How does this affect the way that we see God? What happens when we idolize certain things in our lives and we place them above God? We place that attention like above and that priority above God. What happens is that we remove him from the center of our gaze. Wow. Right? We think about, you know, like we kind of use this analogy a lot, right? Like our hearts... Like it's, all, like, it's God's home, right? It's God's house, right? But instead of God being the main, like, center and, you know, like, the person that lives with us in our house, he becomes this, like, side object on the side. That kind of just looks nice. Like, it's just wow. nice there, right? And so when we idolize, like, when we have, like, when we worship other things, it removes our gaze from the gaze of Jesus, right? And... I kind of want to go over in terms of this. Oh, so there's this. I I'm go back to this again. But there's this cycle, right? That I mentioned, right? Like, you know, what's interesting is like I'm sure like we all can see that this is not just a cycle that we see in Judges, but we see in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. We see that God is calling us to be holy, to be set apart, right? But in our own desires, like, we fall into the temptation, right? Um, of just the things that are surrounding us, right? Being an SF in the Bay Area, like, we know what are some of the things that kind of surrounds us, right? This, this desire to be successful. This desire to make it in the marketplace, make it in our careers, right? To have an amazing education. So it's a cycle. We have an amazing education, we come out of it, and then we make a lot of money, right? right? And then we buy this lifestyle that we desire and that we Mm -hmm. want, right? And so, you know, like, again, I feel I have to say this again, not that these things are bad, but you know, are they your main affection? Are they your main priorities in life, right? And so we see this this cycle, and we become oppressed, right? Because, like, you know, we feel like we're so far away from God because our focus has been shifted away from Him, right? And then we repent, and then we cry out to God, right? And God, in His great mercy, He delivers us, right? He doesn't raise up a judge, right? It's not like He raises up a pastor to deliver you, right? But He's already sent Jesus Christ, right? He's already 
deliver us. And then there's peace. And this cycle is called to be holy, right? He said part. And I think sometimes, like, we fall into this vicious cycle. But, you know, it's like, what if, like, what if it doesn't become a cycle? And we can just stop, right? Stop it where it is. And I think, you know, as I was kind of thinking about this, right, this vicious cycle that people fall into, you know, what happens a lot also generational things, too. I don't think what we know, like, what we don't realize a lot of times is that a lot of these generational sins or these curses and families get passed down from one to another. Yeah. And um, yeah. but what if you're that person to yeah. say it stops here? Yeah. Wow. I will Amen. I will consecrate myself, I will submit myself to God and I will say that God that you come first in my life. Right? Yeah. I think um as I was thinking about cycles, I think one thing that God really kinda of highlighted to me was this vicious cycle in my own family. And so, um, you know, I, I'm a first generation to be born in the U.S. And so um, my family came from China during a really tough time, actually, when there was a lot of chaos going on in the country. And so they come, right? And so when they come, they want a new beginning. They desire this new life. And so they focus all their energy on making money, right? I want to like, be able to support my child, right? I want to be able to support my family. and. Um, you know, one of the things is generational curses that has happened in my family is actually gambling. And so I don't really, I don't really share this much because sometimes it feels like, wow, there's a lot of shame. You know, but I want to just speak it so that yeah. it can set it free. Yeah. You know, maybe set other people free who feels like, you know, like I'm bound to this cycle, yeah. right, that I see yeah. in front yeah. of me. Right? And so, um, you know, my... There's a lot of like gambling issues in my family, even to a certain point where I've seen money being stolen from people in my family. Um, I've seen suicide in my family because of gambling. And, and I think, even at a very young age, I said to myself, I, I'm not gonna fall into that. I will not fall into that. And so, what's funny is actually ever since I turned 21, like I'm in my, like, I'm, in, I'm 30, so ever since I've never actually stepped foot in like a casino, wow. right? Because there's this fear that I feel like I don't want to fall into this cycle. But you know what? Traps are not obvious, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I just remember, um, you know, I used to do, so I used to do youth group. And I remember, I think this is when it kind of God highlighted this to me. But even though I don't gamble, I have this tendency to play games and want to win things. Like, there's this, like, in me, like, there's this thing. And it was kind of weird. So I remember this one time I was doing youth group, and we took them to this, um, this what we play called Agets, right? And Agets had these, I don't know if you guys ever been, but there's, like, these little claw games. I kid you not, I was so good at that game. Every time I go, I would win something. I'm so good. I'm not even lying. I had, like, I had so many. I think at one point, I won so much, and God told me to let it free. That what ended up happening was, I was like a summer school teacher for two classes, and there were like 60 kids. I kid you not, I had enough toys to give each kid Wow. Right? So anyways, I realized that there's this one time I was at this, like, you know, at the Boba place with these kids, right? One time, I was just not having it. I like kept putting in money, kept putting in money. I was like, next one, next one, next one, next one, next one. And what happened, it was like, like almost $20. And then the kid was like, can I just buy one by now, right? I'm like, yeah, it's not the same. Like, I'm sharing this because, like, that's a trap. Yeah. Like, there's this, 
in inside, like there's this desire to win something, right? To gain something by putting in less, right? If I put in 50 cents, I could win this toy that's ten dollars, right? It's a trap. And so I realized that at that moment, like it's not obvious, and you have to break free from it. And I think just our cycles, like in our lives and our family, like maybe it's divorce. And I have to be honest, I've seen so many divorces in my family that I really thought that I'm, that's me. Wow. I, when I was in high school, before I even met my husband, I thought to myself, I'll probably last a few years, I'll probably then get divorced. Like, this was the norm. Wow. This was not even like, you know, like sadness when I said it. I was just like, oh, that's just the norm, right? But you know, like, cycles can be yeah. broken. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cycles can be broken. Yeah. This cycle was already broken because the blood of Jesus, right? He was the ultimate deliverer and he came and he set us free. And so, I kind of want to, I kind of want to end this time, right? And um, I think this seems kind of like, maybe a little bit, I hope it's not discouraging, because it might sound like, oh man, like I'm, I'm being scrutinized and like I'm being judged because like maybe I, I value things, right? Or that maybe look at Gideon, I'm like, don't be like Gideon, right? But like, but you know what? The Bible is just not about, it's not about these people. Like Gideon is not the center of the Bible, right? And yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah. you know, who is the center of the Bible? It's Jesus Christ. Yeah. Every book in the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, will lead to the main character, which is Jesus Christ, right? I think a lot of times we hear, like, growing up, like, B-I-B-L-E, right? Like, oh, what, what does it stand for? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? But I'm here to say no, actually that is not true. The Bible is not just about instructions, right? But it's not, the Bible is about Jesus Christ, the perfecter of faith. Right? Everything points to Jesus Christ. So why am I saying this is that even though there's this failure of this whole nation, this whole nation failed, right? But yet, Jesus Christ, right? He redeemed us. He redeemed us, right? And it says in this verse, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. God doesn't say be perfect because I'm perfect. He's saying be holy because I am holy. He is set apart, right? When God is calling us to holiness, he's saying, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be set apart from this nation. I want you to be set apart from this culture. I want you to be set apart in this world. But you know, it's there's this pull on the other end, right? Like we want to step into holiness, but like there's this pull to, yeah. to like right. temptation to like yeah. fall into idol worship, right? It's a trap. So holiness. The process of holiness is sanctification. And I'm gonna share this with you. Sanctification is not pretty. I think a lot of times you think like sacrifices. I'm being let me be sanctified. It's this beautiful picture. Yeah, yeah. But I'm gonna I'll be straight with you. Sacrifices are ugly. Yeah. Like if you read the Old Testament, it's all the slaughtering animals. You take the blood and then you you know like take it, put it in the corner of the horns, right? It's ugly, right? Yeah. It's like. It's between us and God. He rips it away. It's 
not pretty. Yeah. It's very ugly, actually. But you know what? That ugliness, it becomes an aroma to God, and He accepts it, and He takes it. Okay? And so, you know, I've been really thinking about things that I idolize. Because I don't want to be someone that's just like, I'm just going to preach this to you. Don't worship, like, you know, don't worship idols, right? But I really have to think, like, what are some things that are really idolizing? honest like it's my pride sometimes we are the main things that we idolize in our lives it's my pride um and i kind of want to share this with you guys um you know uh, around four years ago um my husband and i have been married for two years and this month is our six year anniversary actually and so at that time yeah thank you <laughs> at that time we've been married for two years and i have to be I, I, um, again, I kind of mentioned a little bit, I've seen a lot of divorces in my life, right? Like, my mom's been actually divorced three times, right? And so I thought that, like, this is a cycle that I'm going to fall into. And it was very interesting, because even though I'm at the lowest point in my life, like, I, I still, I tried to be obedient to God, and I still served God, right? I poured all my time, like, effort, like, affection, right, into ministry, like, Love, like, you know, like I, I grew up like doing, like, I was a youth leader, right? So I ministered to youth, and, and I think the thing that I held on to was my dignity and my pride. I was like, if I'm gonna lead these people, I have to be okay. I have to look like there's nothing wrong, right? So every week, right, I meet with these youth that I work with, and I poured out my heart, right? But at the same time, like, this other end, like, I was so, like, our relationship was so bad, and I just felt like. God, like, I can't let people know what's wrong. I can't let people know that I'm, I'm going through this. Like, my pride. I idolize my pride. And I didn't let people into that part of my life. And I think, um, I just remember at that two-year mark, I was like, God, I can't see it in the past five years. Like, there's no way. Right? And I think when it came to a point where I realized that, I think I have to let it go. And that process of sanctification, that where I gave that up to God, is like so ugly. Like it's not, it's not pretty, it's not beautiful. But you know, God took that offer and then it became an aroma that was pleasing to his heart. And I think when I look back now, right, it's like, wow God, thank you so much. Like, you know, when we give up things that we idolize, right? Offer at his feet and he'll receive it no matter how ugly it is. So the calling to be holy. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God is setting us apart. You know, um, I just want to take this time. If we can just all close our eyes and we just reflect. And that we really just come before God with open hearts. And we ask God, God, what are some things? They're taking away, that's taking away my affection, that's taking away my attention from you. Because you deserve it all. You deserve every ounce of it. But sometimes we desire, we desire the things of this world.
what we desire because it's just it looks so good it looks so attractive and we desire it but god can you just can you just turn our affections towards you can you help us to desire the things of the kingdom the things of your heart
God, I just pray that you work in all of us, Lord. That you render out the things that are not supposed to be there, but we fully surrender all the things in our lives to you. Because God, there's nothing greater. There's nothing worth more than who you are, Lord. Things like money, things like jobs, it's a given. God's like, I'm going to give it to you. you it's, it's, like, it's a given. My, my streets are paved with gold, right? It's a given, but God, help us to desire the greater things in our lives. The greater things. You know, we talked about stewardship last week, right? We talked about stewardship. Like, what is the more, right? What is the much? What is the much that God wants us, right, it's, to give? It's not just, like, money, right? Because money can't buy these things, right? But God desires all of us. He desires to just be with us. So God, we just pray that may our lives be sanctified. That may we step into the call of holiness. That God, that for some of us who's been standing on the fence, that's just kind of, you know, bouncing in and out and haven't fully committed their lives to you. God, I just pray that right now you encounter them. You show them that what you have is so much more than what this world can offer. God, help us to take that step into holiness to be set apart for you.